though their origins have long been forgotten. For example, hang up the phone. We use that all the time, but when was the last time you actually hung up a phone? Been a while. You sound like a broken record. What's a record, let alone a broken record? (laughs) Roll up the window. I mean, in a push-button world, how does that work? Roll up the window. Or how about the term clockwise? Digital displays have made that terminology obsolete. And then there are other such expressions. Running out of steam. Hold your horses. What in the world does that mean? Or put through the ringer. These phrases linger, but the concepts behind them that were once part of our lives are no longer recognized. And there is another word that tragically I would have to put into this same category. It is the term holiness. In Christian circles, the phrase living a holy life was once a common expression. But today, very few Christians even know what that word means. Yet holiness is the theme that Paul addresses here at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and again at the beginning of chapter 7. He begins in verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved... Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The word translated holy means special to God. We often think of holiness and being holy as an intrinsic quality. What's holy is better or purer than what's not. But that's an incorrect use of the word. In the Old Testament, the bowls and utensils used in the temple were considered holy, not because they were made from unique metals or because of a specific design. Their construction could have been the same as any other vessel, but what made them special was their dedication to the Lord's service. It was their consecration, not their composition, that made them holy. Once there was a mom who thought that her household rules would carry more weight if they were written like Old Testament laws. Surely her kids would obey biblical-sounding laws, commandments. And so here's a sampling of the rules she came up with. Of the beasts of the field and of the fish of the sea and of all foods that are acceptable in my sight, you may eat, but not in the living room. Of the hoofed animals, broiled or ground into burgers, you may eat, but not in the living room. Of the cloven hoofed animals, plain or with cheese, you may eat, but not in the living room. Of the cereal grains, of the corn and of the wheat and of the oats, and of all the cereals that are of bright color, you may eat, but not in the living room. Of frozen dessert. And of all frozen after-meal treats you may eat, but absolutely not in the living room. Of the juices and the other beverages, yes, even of those in sippy cups, you may drink, but not in the living room, neither may you carry such therein. Indeed, when you reach the place where the living room carpet begins, of any food or beverage, there you may not eat, neither may you drink, but if you are sick and are lying down and watching something, then you may eat in the living room. 
Obviously, except for a few very special occasions, that living room was off limits. I'm sure this mother's living room was constructed out of the same materials as every other room in the house. But she had dedicated her living room as a special room for special functions. And therefore, what was allowable in other rooms is not allowable in the living room. And this is how you and I should understand this concept of holiness. Your life is God's living room. You're the place where he continues his work and lives out his life. And he's very picky about what happens in his living room. A Christian is special to God. Not because we're intrinsically better than anyone else, but we're his child. That means that your life and all that you are are dedicated to him. Thus, anything that defaces the beauty or the purity of your life that tarnishes its witness becomes off limits. Well, Paul continues, open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. Talk about holiness in the way that a person carries out their ministry. Here's a great example. Every minister should be able to say with Paul, I've wronged no one. I've corrupted no one. I've cheated no one. Paul apparently ministered with a clear conscience. You know, though some of the Corinthians had been critical of Paul, he had been honest and straightforward with them. No hidden agendas with this man. And now he asks that they return the favor. He believes that he's earned their respect. He says in verse 3, I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. The church in Corinth had doubted Paul. In fact, they had broken his heart, and yet he still had a heart for them. He was willing to die for them, even live with them. He says, great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. Even as the Corinthians criticized Paul, he still bragged on them. When he spoke to members of other churches, he talked about the Corinthians. They were a powerful church. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. He continues in verse 4. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts. Inside were fears. And it is a bit sobering to me to hear the fearless Apostle Paul admit, inside were fears. At times, even a courageous apostle gets afraid. Even an apostle has fears. You know, it's been said, courage is not the absence of fear, but the willingness to trust God in the midst of our fears. He says, nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And I love this name that Paul gives to God. Have you ever prayed to God who comforts the downcast? What a great name for God. You know, the word downcast was used by shepherds. Whenever a plump, fat sheep fell on its back and couldn't right itself on its own, it was referred to as downcast. And apparently, Paul was so distressed, outside were conflicts, inside were fears, that he needed the help of his friend Titus to get back up again. 
I think often God uses the encouragement of our friends to get us back up again, doesn't he? Well, God comforted Paul by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Now, Paul was in Macedonia when Titus brought news of the Corinthians' reaction to his previous letter, his first letter, what we call 1 Corinthians. Though Paul rebuked the Corinthians for their divisiveness and their carnality, many of them had repented, and they had obeyed Paul's instructions. And so he says in verse 8, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. You know, when I was a naughty kid, which was very infrequently... But when I was a naughty kid, my dad would always lay me over his knee, he'd pull off his belt, and he'd whip my little rear end until it hurt, and he would always say to me, Sandy, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. And I never once believed him. I never believed that until I became a parent myself. And now I know it's true. And guess what I've said many times to my kids just before I spanked them? Son, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. You know, it's an agonizing ordeal to discipline someone you love. And this is how Paul felt when he wrote 1 Corinthians. Nobody likes it when their sin gets exposed. A good rebuke hurts. Often it causes the recipient to get angry. Paul knew the risk he was taking by reprimanding his friends there in Corinth, but he did it anyway. He loved them. He wasn't worried about himself. He didn't need to be liked. Paul's only interest was the glory of God and the health of this church. And so he had written them the letter. Hebrews 12 teaches us that a parent who refuses to discipline their child really doesn't love that child. Paul loved the Corinthians enough to hold them accountable for their sin. He was willing to risk his friendship with them to help salvage their fellowship with God. Real friends do that. Love is willing to take that kind of risk. Well, Paul continues. He says, For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. The Corinthians were sad for a season, but after the sting of their spanking subsided, the discipline worked. Paul's truth and love led them to repentance. And so verse 10, For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Notice there are two types of sorrow over sin. There is a godly sorrow and there is a worldly sorrow. Reminds me of the Catholic fellow. He was tormented by a haunting secret. He worked at a lumberyard. One day he went to the confessional and he admitted to the priest that he'd been stealing wood. The priest asked him, he said, well, how much have you stolen? He said, well, enough to build me a house, my son a house, my two daughters a house. In a small cottage up at the lake. 
Well, the priest was shocked. He said, my son, this is a serious offense. I'll have to think of a severe penance. Have you ever thought of doing a retreat? The fellow got really excited. He says, no, but if you can get the plans, I can get the lumber. <laughs> hey, that's not godly sorrow, okay? Worldly sorrow is being sorry that you got caught or sorry that you're going to be punished. It tries to escape the consequences of sin and avoid the punishment. Oh, worldly sorrow produces crocodile tears, but no real desire to change. Worldly sorrow is a self-centered sorrow. It's a self-pitying sadness. It's a woe is me kind of sorrow. Whereas godly sorrow is a God-directed and God-honoring sorrow. You're sorry because you broke the heart of God. Because you thumbed your nose in His authority. You've offended God. Godly sorrow accepts the consequences of my actions. It doesn't buck or resent proper punishment. It seeks not only forgiveness, but the opportunity and the power to change. Godly sorrow yields real repentance. Paul continues, he says, For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. If you want to discern if a person is truly repentant, use this checklist. Is there a diligence to do the right thing? Is there a desire to rebuild one's reputation? A hatred for sin, a fear of God, a willingness to do whatever it takes to get things right. A passion for God, a longing to overcome one's sin. Once I was a Sunday school teacher, she asked the kids, she says, who can tell me what you have to do to gain God's forgiveness? One little boy answered, he said, well, first you got to sin. And sadly, I know some adults with the very same attitude. They seem to always be sinning to be forgiven, and they're forgiven so they can sin again. There's no true repentance. There's no desire to break the cycle. Either they're enjoying their sin or they're crying out for forgiveness, but there's no godly sorrow. Don't you really want to overcome what's dragging you down? Understand, without real repentance... There can be no real forgiveness. This is what Esau discovered. Hebrews 12 verse 17 says of Esau, he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. A flood of tears is no substitute for a repentant heart. You remember also Judas. Matthew 27 verse 3 tells us, Then Judas, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver. Oh, Judas was sorry that he had betrayed Jesus. But it was not a sorrow that caused him to face up to what he had done. Rather than seek God's forgiveness and restoration, Judas sulked in, in his sorrow. In fact, he tried to avoid the consequences of his actions by committing suicide. Verse 12, Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Now recall the original incident in Corinth that had provoked 
the church discipline. A man and his father's wife, that is, his stepmom, were shacking up together. It was blatant immorality. And the church had taken pride in their tolerance. And you remember back in 1 Corinthians, Paul had written to them. And he had said, look, no way this should be going on. Either these people need to repent or you need to kick them out of your church. See, a church body can no longer tolerate unrepentant sin than the human body can tolerate a cancer. If you leave it alone, if you just ignore it, it'll destroy you. And of course, the church in Corinth had dealt faithfully. They had dealt with the situation. Certainly, Paul confronted this couple out of love for them. But here he says there was more to his motivation, for he also loved the church. And he made an example of this couple to warn the church of the dangers of compromise. He was looking out for this church's best interests. He finishes up the chapter. He says, therefore, we have been comforted in your comfort. And we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I am not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. The Corinthians had lived up to Paul's confidence in them. They had responded with a godly sorrow. They had made the changes that Paul had asked. And they had glorified God and comforted Titus. Chapter 8. Once there was an infant, little baby, playing on the carpet. She picked up a quarter. Stuck it right in her mouth. All of a sudden, she swallowed the quarter. Well, the mom screamed out. She went hysterical. She screamed to her husband in the other room, Honey, quick, call 911. Our baby swallowed a quarter. The husband responded, Forget 911. Call the pastor. He can get money out of anybody. (laughs) And in the next two chapters, Pastor Paul's intention is to get money out of the Corinthians. He's going to teach them about giving. You see, famine had hit Judea. The region had fallen on hard times. Believers in Jerusalem were hungry and hurting. And Paul saw their need as an opportunity to bridge the gap between Jewish and Gentile believers. You remember the Jerusalem church had been the one that sent out the first missionaries to reach out to the Gentiles. And Paul knows that now the Gentile churches have the opportunity to return the favor by showing their love for the Jews through their monetary support. Paul had already collected an offering in Macedonia, and now he uses it as an example to inspire the Corinthians. Verse 1. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. Now, first of all, notice that Paul doesn't call their monetary offering a gift. He calls it a grace. And I think that's instructive. Hey, receive God's spiritual favors, and you'll want to do something tangible in response. Giving is the answer. Giving is our response 
to God's amazing grace. Reminds me of the family that attended church that would take the offering just before they took communion. Well, the dad would always give his kids a little dime so they could have something to put in the collection plate. Well, one Sunday, the youngest boy, who was new to the adult service, he had just dropped his dime in the plate when he went to receive communion. His mom said to him gently, said, son, sit back down now. You're not ready to take communion yet. With a loud voice, this little boy said, why not? I just paid for it. (laughs) And sadly, this is how some Christians think it works. God's salvation can't be purchased. It can't be earned. Understand, salvation is free. It was paid for by the blood of Jesus. If your offering is an attempt on your part to buy God's pardon or buy his blessing or buy his favor, then you need to put your dirty money back in your wallet. God doesn't need it. We don't give to get from God. We give to show our gratitude to God. Giving is a response. God has been so good to us, our giving to him, it should be our way of saying thanks. And apparently the Macedonian churches, Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, they were all grateful for God's grace. Even in tough times, they had given liberally or generously. The Greek phrase in verse 2 translated deep poverty. It's a graphic term. It meant rock bottom destitution. We would say, as poor as dirt. It was used for a beggar with nothing going for him and no hope of improving his lot. Though the Macedonians had very little, they still gave generously. And it just goes to show, if you wait until you can afford to tithe to start, then friend, you'll never start. As a matter of fact, statistics show that poor people are proportionately much more generous than rich people. In 2001, a study was done by a group called Independent Sector that showed that folks making under $25,000 a year gave away 4.2% of their income to charity, while $75,000 a year wage earners gave just 2.7%. See, it proves that our willingness to give isn't as much about what's in our bank account as it is what's in our hearts. The balance in your bank account might affect the amount that you can give, but it should never affect your willingness to give or the regularity of your giving. You remember the widow's mite? She came with that little bitty coin in her hand. That's all she had. What impressed Jesus wasn't the size of the woman's offering, but the amount that was left afterwards. She gave all that she had. She didn't just tip God like some of us do. This lady gave sacrificially. And this is what had impressed Paul about the giving of the Macedonians. He says in verse 3, he says, For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. The Macedonians weren't pressured or badgered into giving. They asked Paul, how could they give? You know, it blesses me when someone approaches us and says, hey, you guys don't pass an offering plate here. How do we give an offering to God? Of course, we point them to the offering boxes in the back. But I'm just glad that they have to come up and ask. I think we're doing it right when people have to ask, how can they give their offering? 
He says, and not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. And notice this, the priorities of the Macedonians. Before they gave any money to God, they first gave themselves. Too many folks try to buy God off with a few bucks. They'll give their money because they don't want to give themselves. They do enough to pacify their conscience. Or they give just to sort of get God off their back and think they've done their duty. God, leave me alone. Here's a few bucks. It's kind of their attitude. Here's the problem with that. God could care less about your money until he first has your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength. He wants you, not your money. Your offering only matters to God once he has you. Yet on the flip side, how can you say you've given all to God if you're not willing to give him a meager 10%? You know, in medieval times, when armies were converted to Christianity, many of the soldiers, they were baptized holding their right hand out of the water. It was their way of saying that they were giving everything to God except for their sword hand. Just in case they were attacked and they had to fight back and kill, they wanted their sword hand to themselves. Today, it seems people are baptized holding their wallet out of the water. Oh, they're willing to give to Jesus every area of their lives, except their finances. It's not real commitment at all. Verse 6, so we urge Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete the grace in you as well. Paul had commissioned Titus to go and to collect this offering. But as you abound in everything in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. You know, the church at Corinth had abounded in spiritual gifts. They spoke in tongues. They prophesied. They discerned spirits. And yet at the same time, too, they were greedy and they were stingy. You know, on occasion, you'll find a Christian who excuses away his responsibility to give financially by saying, well, that's just not my gift. Paul would disagree with you. Giving is everyone's gift. Giving is our response to God's amazing grace. We're all called by God to open up our hearts and our wallets to him. Verse 8, I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. In other words, he mentions the Macedonians to stir up the Corinthians. But if that's not a good enough example for you, he says, here's another one. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Paul's saying, if you won't follow the Macedonians' example, what about Jesus' example? Our Lord made himself materially poor that we could become spiritually rich. Talk about giving. What an example. He says, and in this I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing of it. That as there was a readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion out of what you have. My wife plays a lot of tennis, and I think Christianity and tennis are a lot alike. That is, a good serve requires a good follow-through. 
Good intentions aren't enough. Woulda, coulda, shoulda doesn't cut it, does it? A year earlier, the Corinthians had started taking up this offering for the Jews in Judea, but they had never finished. It reminds me of the pastor's son. He was always at church, lived, grew up in the church, cut his teeth on the back of a pew. He always was in church and he heard the words justification, sanctification, and glorification, and reconciliation. All the Asians, he'd heard them. One day his teacher asked him, he said, who can define the word procrastination? The pastor's son answered, he said, well, I'm not sure what it means, but my church sure believes in it. (laughs) Hey, God wants us to obey, not just talk about it. Not just plan on doing it. Like Nike, we just didn't just do it. We need to be an obedient, not a procrastinating church. Verse 12, for if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. In other words, don't get hung up on the amount of your offering. What's important is a willing mind, sincerity. Give regularly, give sacrificially, and God will be pleased with whatever percentage or amount that turns out to be. He says, for I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by an equality. And this is the genius behind what I think is a biblical principle. It's called tithing. The word tithe means a tenth. Everybody learns the joys of giving, not just one wealthy benefactor. To God, a meager tithe is as significant as a massive tithe. God isn't expecting the Corinthians to give it all. He's collecting an offering from every Gentile church, and everyone is to give their share. See, here's God's wisdom in action. If everybody gives their share, then giving isn't a burden on anybody. And so here's the question. Are you giving your share? Once there was an old country preacher, he needed to boost the church's revenues one week. and So he stood up before the offering was taken and he announced to the congregation, he said, before we pass the plate today, I just want to ask the person who stole Brother Harvey's chickens not to give their offering. God doesn't want a thief's money. Well, needless to say, for the first time in months, everybody in the building that day gave a little bit of offering. They chipped in. They made a donation. And this is God's financial plan. Everybody chips in. See, God is after equality in our giving. He says that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance also may supply your lack, that there may be equality. For as it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Paul quotes Exodus 16 verse 18. You know, sometimes I can give more than you. Other times you can give more than me. But if we all give our share, if we all chip in, it all balances out. Verse 16. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. And we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. And we're not sure who this brother happened to be. Could have been Luke, maybe Timothy. We're just not sure. But he says a lot of things about him. He says, and not only that, but who has also chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift? 
which is administered by us to the glory of the Lord himself and to show you your ready mind, avoiding this, that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift which is administered by us, providing honorable things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have often proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent because of the great confidence which we have in you. Now, whoever this praiseworthy brother was, his job was to accompany the offering to Jerusalem with Paul. It was a security precaution. See, if something happened along the way, if the money was stolen, or if it was lost, or if it sunk in a shipwreck, Paul didn't want to be accused of absconding with the funds. And so Paul made himself accountable. And this is what you want to look for in leadership. Does the leadership make themselves accountable? I like what Bible commentator Charles Hodge writes here. He says, it was not enough for the apostle to do right. He recognized the importance of appearing right. We are bound to act in such a way that not only God, who sees the heart and knows all things, may approve of our conduct, but also that men may be constrained to recognize our integrity. Paul employed procedures that safeguarded his integrity. And that's what we've done here at Calvary Chapel. Verse 23. If anyone inquires about Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker concerning you. Or if our brethren are inquired about, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Therefore show to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of your boasting on our behalf. Chapter 9. Now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous, that is unnecessary, for me to write to you, for I know your willingness, about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that Achaia, which was the region now in which Corinth was located, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal was stirred up by the majority. Now, Paul's being shrewd here. In the previous chapter, he uses the generosity of the Macedonians as an example to the Corinthians. But when he was in Macedonia, he used the Corinthians' good intentions as an example to them. He says, Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that as I said, you may be ready. Lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised. Now, Paul wants to avoid an embarrassing situation and what is a poor witness. He doesn't want to come to Corinth with the Macedonians and there be no offering, especially after he's been bragging on these Corinthians. He's been taking up the offering for the church, taking up, he's been talking up the church in Corinth. And now he's concerned about the Corinthians letting him down. He doesn't want there to be embarrassment. And he's also concerned about the attitude behind their giving, he says, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. Understand this, Paul, God through Paul, has never asked anyone to give with a grudge. God doesn't want you to give with a grudge. If after all that God has done for you, 
after you've considered the blood of Christ and the sacrifice of Jesus, after you've considered all the mercy and grace God has poured out upon you, if you still have to force yourself to write that check, friend, just keep your money in your pocket. Give because you want to, not because you have to. Verse 6 says, but this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Understand our offering is like a seed. Plant or invest in God's work. And it yields spiritual rewards. See, in reality, none of us can give anything to God. He already owns all that we possess. Our giving is an opportunity to invest and to participate in God's purposes. It's been said of money, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. You can lay up treasure in heaven by giving to God's work here on earth. And then verse 6 adds an important principle. The degree to which you give is the degree to which you're going to get. He says, sow sparingly and reap sparingly. In other words, give a little, get a little. But sow bountifully and you'll reap bountifully. That means give a lot and you'll get a lot. I like the guy who says, I have a shovel and God has a shovel. I shovel toward him. He shovels towards me and he has a bigger shovel. Don't forget, you reap in proportion to what you sow. So, let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not begrudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Notice these three characteristics. Our giving to God needs to be personal, it needs to be volitional, and it needs to be cheerful. A pastor should never lay a guilt trip on his people and put a dollar figure on their giving. You give as you purpose in your heart. We're under grace, not law. You need to be led by the Holy Spirit in your giving. I trust the Holy Spirit to lead you well. A pastor should never pressure or manipulate folks into giving. As if God needs their money or his purposes are going to fail if they don't give. It's true, you might miss out on a blessing, but God can supply whatever he needs. Your giving should always come from your heart. It should be volitional. And then God wants us to give cheerfully. We need to be a cheerful giver. The word could literally be translated a hilarious giver. God wants you to give with a smile on your face. When a believer begins to understand just how much God has given to them, then they'll look for ways to want to give back to Him. Pastors tend to use three different approaches toward raising money. The flint, the sponge, and the honeycomb. A flint has to be struck to get a spark, and some pastors browbeat their people into giving. A sponge has to be squeezed, and thus other pastors use various gimmicks to pressure people into giving. But a honeycomb, it just oozes. Its inner sweetness just oozes out. This is the approach I prefer. By helping you cultivate an appreciation for God's grace, you'll overflow with love for Him and with your giving. And then verse 8, And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you also, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. God is all sufficient, and if you trust Him, He'll be your sufficiency. 
He certainly can support his own work. For as it is written, and he quotes Psalm 112 verse 9, he, was, he has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. But my question to you is, have you sown? What have you sown? How much have you sown? God is going to bless it, but you have to sow it. While you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. The Gentiles offering will not only meet the needs of the Jews in Jerusalem, but it will cause our hearts to rejoice. And God does it this way. He turns our physical offerings into spiritual blessings. This should be the motivation behind our giving, not only to meet physical needs, but to glorify God in the process. For he says in verse 13, While through the proof of this ministry they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men and by their prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. The Jewish believers in Jerusalem had prayed for the Gentile churches and now the Corinthians offering was proof to them of their growth and it was an answer to that prayer that they had prayed. And so Paul concludes chapter 9. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. How fitting that Paul wraps up his discussion on giving by reminding the Corinthians of the greatest gift, God's indescribable gift, which is Jesus. And there we have 2 Corinthians 7, 8, and 9. You didn't think I could do it. 